This episode of the Vine Pair Podcast is sponsored by the Prisoner Wine Company. Raise a toast this holiday season with a glass of wine that airs on the rebellious side. Always intriguing, online exclusives from the Prisoner Wine Company like Saldo's Zinfandel Three Ways are sure to delight the wine lovers in your life. Head to theprisonerwinecompany.com to shop now and order by December 14th to receive in time for the holidays. Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast, Friday edition. I actually have a story I want to talk about that I've been reading first. Because I can I go first? Yes. So that no please. one takes the one that I was excited about. Yeah. Cool. I thought that Hannah's piece this week about the uh the rise of beverage directors in the sort of high-end Korean dining space in New York City was really awesome. Um and I've really been fascinated with this because I think like what she addresses, which was really cool is uh, that there's always been sort of, so basically for those that aren't familiar, probably the hottest fine dining space in New York city right now is Korean as opposed to what used to be French, right? French like cuisine and traditional French cuisine uh, or French or influenced French cuisine used to sort of drive the demand for the high end restaurants, Michelin ratings, et cetera. And, 10 of the Michelin rated restaurants this year are Korean. Uh, a lot of them, are, most of them are tasting menus, but they all have some sort of Korean influence in them. And there's always been this sort of bias that people have had that Asian food is hard to pair, and especially Korean food because of kimchi, et cetera, uh, especially with wine. And a lot of these beverage directors are really bucking that trend mm-hmm. and that belief. And uh, I think she just did a really great job at highlighting who these people are and what their sort of backgrounds are and then their perspective on uh, the industry. And maybe want to try a lot of these places because I haven't been to any of them. Never been to Attaboy. Never been to Atomics. Coat you have been to? Never been to Coat. Oh, really? No. I- Hannah's been to Coat. I'm not. <laughs> no. Hannah's been to most of these places. Yeah, I've, I've, been, <laughs> I've been to Ouija Me. It's bad. Mm-hmm. I, don't have the t- I don't have the time or the dineros. <laughs> So I just haven't. Uh, and uh, to be fair, a lot of these places, the reason I have not been is a lot of them are the only issue that I have in that this is my own issue because of who I'm married to is a lot of them are not vegetarian friendly mm-hmm. or do not do adaptable vegetarian menus. Menus. Yeah, sure. So it's hard for me. And like that means that it has to be something that I do on my own. And Naomi and I have always kind of had this policy like if we're going to spend on food – because we both enjoy it. Like, it's got to be an experience we both can have together. And so, like, a lot of these other tasting many places that we've gone to in the past, especially the ones, again, that are sort of, like, more new classic New American or French, very easily usually adapt their menus for vegetarian. But uh, I had reached out to a few places uh, on the sort of Korean circuit, and a lot of them just said, like, it's too hard for them to do that. Or, like, it wouldn't be – or they use fish they use fish sauces yeah. and stuff like that. So it's just a lot more difficult um, – for her to then like have an experience that feels worth the two hundred fifty three hundred fifty dollars that you're going to spend a person, uh, so I have not been. So I'm looking. If anyone wants to take me, <laughs> I'd love to go. I, I'm a really fun date. <laughs> a really fun date. Anyways, oh, I'm so glad I got to say mine first. I was really scared one of you would say it. Uh, Zach, what about you? So I think to me, among the things on the site this week that just kind of captivated me, and I think actually captures a lot of things that we've been talking about in various ways on this trend, was Sean Evans' piece about uh, what's inside the world's oldest scotch bottles. Um, 
and you know, we've talked about auctions and you know more let's say uh you know counterfeiting and things like that but to me this is just fascinating as an insight into these you know bottles of uh scotch that are you know almost 200 years old and are being auctioned off yeah and are just like it's kind of like what are you gonna what what are you gonna get you know if they may not actually be that old no one really knows it's just kind of fantastic and fun and just like I don't know, man. Like, just it's an interesting insight into a world that I find fascinating, even if I also find it kind of uh, terrifying. Yeah, I loved working on that piece, and Sean was like very, very excited to write it <laughs> after the news broke. Um, I guess back in September that these bottles were uncovered. Um, so I thought that was that was really interesting too. I think as as that piece published uh the first bottle was going for like 13 like up to 13,000 pounds which is crazy the piece that I really enjoyed this week on the site was uh, Evan Rail's piece, kind of exploring the bourbon market outside of the United States, but in like that one too. in uh, continental Europe specifically. Um, how there was all this promise of maybe a decade ago that it was the next kind of opportunity for bourbon to take Europe, and it just like hasn't. And how there's just been this really big struggle for. American whiskey to connect with European drinkers who are obviously like very big whiskey drinkers. Um, but just what's available on that market is is um, n- none of the great stuff that we see here, first of all, but also just like not how they think of drinking bourbon there. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting piece this week. Yeah. So they made it for a larger discussion at some point. Yeah. I think, again, that's, that I think the thing with... Uh, with Europe is it, it's the same as what happens with the U.S. Like I th- think, you know, if something's huge in Europe, a lot of marketers assume, oh, we can make it big here. This perfect example is the gin and tonic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just never has happened. <laughs> Stop it. Uh, <laughs> but then, you know, in terms of Europe, I think there's this belief that tequila is going to pop there. I mean, if you if you look at the um, mm-hmm. announcement from Diageo, right, they're saying that's that's where they're trying to conquest now. What they're going to take. You know, Don Julio heavily, Casamigos heavily into Europe uh, behind the Paloma. But, you know, again, who knows? It's not – we have much a much stronger attachment to uh, Mexican culture, obviously, in the U.S. and cuisine than in Europe. So that will be interesting to see. And I think the bourbon example is really good as well because, like, I have been – you know, it's funny. Like, in a lot of places I've been to in Europe, there's always, that like, that one American restaurant – Usually, a lot of times it's like Southern food. Weirdly, or like I think in Verona, I think there was a barbecue place I saw this this last. Oh, time really? Was, yeah. I mean, so there, there's definitely like, but it's not the same, right? I don't think there's a lot of people in Europe jonesing for American food. <laughs> you know, like can I just get a well? Except for you know, maybe if they were able to do like a McBourbon, I think it would do. You know, that would probably sell pretty well. They could just attach it to McDonald's. Oh, but uh, you know, but otherwise, like, what else have we exported that's like cuisine that they like really want? Not, not, not much. So, uh, so therefore, I just make bourbon. I trademarked that, just so you know. Okay, McDonald's, that's mine. If you do it in another country, Adam Teeter, Mick Bourbon. Anyways, so I think that would be success. But like again, I just people are you know drink regionally or into things, and we're the same way, right? Like, oh, the the Spanish drink the gin and tonic this way, so I should. We don't want to do it that way. We want to do it our way. Mm-hmm. The reason I think bourbon does so well in America is because it's an American product. The reason tequila does so well is because it's our neighbor's product. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's the same for Europe. So 
Uh, it's, it continues to be interesting, but we continue to still think, right? Because it's, it's got to be big here. And just not. Uh, but <laughs> the uh, the news item of this past week that was pretty interesting to a bunch of people here in the office that we chatted about and wanted to bring to the podcast is this announcement by the CEO of Bollinger uh, that they're going to move much more aggressively into not only making uh, sort of single plot champagnes, which is not what we're really here to chat about, but that they that they view that one of the big things for the future is going to be moving much more into making still champagne, right? So making basically wine, making Pinot Noir, making Chardonnay, mostly Pinot Noir. They don't think Chardonnay uh, it can be as good as a still wine in uh, champagne. But this belief they have that due to global warming or maybe the necessity of global warming, that they have the ability to make Pinot Noir to rival the best crews of Burgundy. I think this is a dumb fucking move. <laughs> I think we all agree. I just think, wow, bro, you 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 dumb. Well, I just think it's going to be really hard for them to market this, like because these wines are going to be what very expensive. Yeah, and I don't think they're going to be able to sell that. I mean, maybe fine wine like collectors or people who really enjoy fine wine, but just to the average consumer, I don't think they're going to be able to sell still champagne in the way that they sell champagne and its lifestyle. It's just champagne is what it is. And it's the the greatest marketing scheme ever in the history of wine. Mm. It is the greatest <laughs> brand ever in the history of wine. Yes. What? Look, I know. Yeah, it sucks. Global warming sucks. Uh, and is real. Uh, but uh, I don't know, man. Try to figure out that first, like how you how you how you still make champagne traditional champagne. I just yeah, I don't get it. it. Like the still wine idea is just, I think, really bad. I think it's just going to be confusing yeah. to people. Yeah. So. I'm not sure if the two of you have ever tried any like Coteau Champenois, which is I've had it once. App- I have not. Yeah. So it's something that I've had a few times. It's been, you know, sometimes you go to a tasting event with a with a champagne house or with a importer and they have, oh, you know, and here's the Pinot Noir, here's especially the, you know, they have the Coteau Champenois. And my take on it has always been like kind of equivalent to the way I feel about wine from Switzerland, which is like it's good, but it can't compete price wise at like at all. Just fundamentally, it, it it stands zero chance in the global market in my eyes. And it's fine for Swiss wine because they sell the wine mostly to the Swiss and the Swiss can afford it and they want to drink Swiss wine and that's cool. And the little bits that trickle out, it's like fine, but there's just not much of a market for them here in the U.S. and it never has been because you can get other similar wines from other European countries that are as good and way less expensive. And I think it's quite possible that what uh, the folks from Boulanger are saying is totally true that they think they're making better still Pinot Noir than they've ever made before because the climate is more conducive to it. They maybe understand what they're doing more. And it's quite possible that those wines are in a qualitative sense on par with much of the wine from Burgundy, which is not geographically that far away and has a lot of similar grain conditions and all that is fine. And I think that you guys are both right that absolutely no one in the wine market gives a shit. (laughs) Like that is what it comes back to because as we've talked about over and over for the broad wine market, these things are marketing exercises more than they are qualitative assessments of wine. And, you know, the more we've talked about it on the pod, the more I've come around to realize how true this is. And champagne is far from the only case. And in fact, I think 
Burgundy, which they could try to compare themselves to, is a great example of this too. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's actually the case that if you were to provide a blind tasting of Pinot Noir from around the world to many collectors and consumers, that they would in fact always gravitate towards the Burgundian expressions. I some agree. of them might, some of the time. But the truth is that Pinot Noir is a grape that grows with some degree of success in a lot of different places and is made by a lot of very talented winemakers and and turned into some excellent wines a lot of different places. And it's no longer the case that Burgundy has a, uh, you know, kind of stranglehold on the top quality Pinot Noir. But what it does have a stranglehold on is a story of thousands of years of cultivation of monks, you know, deciding which are the best vineyard plots. It has a whole scheme and I don't mean that in a negative sense, just a whole kind of cartographic scheme around, you know, where the best vineyards are and where the most expensive wines are. And all of that resonates with consumers and it resonates with collectors. And it helps that generally the Premier and Grand Cru wines are, you know, in a qualitative sense, better. Not always, though. And all of that supports the brand that is Burgundy. And as wine region after wine region is found, you can't just take the Burgundy model slap it into place wherever you are and say, ah, now we are doing the Burgundian thing. And you certainly can't do it with Pinot Noir. And even to some extent, you can't do it with, you know, Nebbiolo, even though Brolo has had some success with this kind of thing. You can't do it with Riesling in the Mosul, even though they've had some success with it. But really, it works in Burgundy and Burgundy alone because that's where it was essentially pioneered. And that's where the wine consuming public still associates that kind of Grand Cru system with. Yeah. I mean, I think... That's also why I kind of think blind tasting as a whole is bullshit because there's no way that the publications that are rating some of these wines super highly compared to the wines of the same grape made elsewhere uh, don't know what these wines are. Yeah. <laughs> just because I th- there's just no way they don't know they're they're tasting Grand Cru Burgundy and, and eventually you know and they're not told and then all of a sudden the, the scores in their mind go above 95, which is why we don't taste blind. But uh, I'm, I I also think that this is a perfect example of why you know. The news story that came out about a month ago that Rudy Kirwanian's back in the world yeah. and being paid to make fakes for wealthy collectors uh, in Asia who then want to have these fun dinners where, like, they go and they take they they're blinded like the actual wine and the actual vintage against a fake that he makes, and they almost always prefer his fakes because he's the, he's tailoring to an actual palette of things that people like, right? And I think that that's sort of that's sort of what Zach is saying right zach is like if we if we were actually just honest with ourselves and you were blinded probably i don't know maybe pinot noirs maybe maybe you like a uh, maybe your palate does like like riper fruit more fruit forward richer maybe you maybe if you were blinded you didn't know you would say and think the more expensive wine was a california pinot you know yeah. or something like that and, but you're told but you know it's burgundy you're staring at the label you're told you just paid a thousand dollars for it so you're all game for it and that's why people like champagne. I mean, we just did the top champagne tasting list, um, and we tasted probably 150, 200 champagnes. A lot of champagnes. Mm-hmm. My sympathies. <laughs> but a lot of it all tasted the same. Yeah. Because that's they're all making this one style, style that they know consumers yeah. like. And is that boring as in a tasting for people who are like geekier wine people like us? Yeah, sure. But like... We also understand this is what most people like. So now, so now you're just looking for the best of that style, and that is what champagne is. And yeah, I just I find it very hard to believe that any consumers would be are going to be able to be convinced that the still version of that is worth the money, is worth their time, is interesting, 
and then should be considered to be on par. I mean, look at how many of these emerging wine regions. We've talked about this before, right? When we asked if there would ever be another Napa, mm-hmm. and I, we, you know, I basically said there'll never be another Judgment of Paris because no one gives a shit. It's the same thing, right? Those regions who are trying to say they are equal to this other region, so take us as seriously and spend as much. Well, that's basically what the Bollinger CEO is saying: is we are still wine is as good as can be produced in Burgundy. No one cares, bro. No one cares. I think the only way that this works or happens is if Psalms start, like Psalms get on board, right? Yeah, yeah but they got on board to other stuff and like, eh. Some well, stuff, I, yes. Yeah. Or like maybe a few producers there. But for the whole, you do, Psalms like bubbles too, man. Well, and I think there's also a big challenge here, two big challenges that we need to discuss. One of them is the fundamental sort of tension between the Burgundian model, which is largely centered around, not exclusively, but largely like relatively small producers, small plots of land, and that is a kind of resonance, whether it's with sommeliers, with a certain kind of wine drinker. And in the case of Boulanger and other big houses, we're talking about, you know, big companies, in some cases owned by even bigger companies. And it I'm not saying that there's no truth to the notion that those uh, producers can't find, you know, interesting individual unique vineyards and cultivate and and produce great wines from those, you know, specific sites. But there's a reason why, you know, there are a lot of reasons why the the model for bigger companies has never been like tons of site specific SKUs. Like it just doesn't work in any kind of macro sense. Like, how do you get those wines into the market? How do you sell them? Who do you sell them to? And I think even, I mean, you, you I think you kind of glossed over this, Adam, although I think it's important to note. I think this is kind of a mistake even as regards sparkling wine. Yeah. Like, the truth is, is that for all of the, you know, and, and the quotes in here talk about, oh, you know, the fine wine consumer is showing more interest in champagne. And I don't doubt that that's true. Champagne is not just trending among the nightclub set. It's trending among all sets in a lot of ways. And yes, there is certain appetite for, you know, single, you know, for certainly for vintage champagne. There's there's appetite for some more site-specific champagne. But I don't think that it's, I think it would be a huge mistake to conflate most of the growth and the excitement around champagne with anything other than sort of relatively available and recognizable and predictable and consistent bottlings, which have always been the hallmark of champagne. And that legacy, that branding is something that you kind of piss away when you start talking about, well, actually we're doing a single you know, vineyard bottling, a vintage bottling that's going to be totally different from year to year. You kind of are are now, now you're turning your product into something completely different. And yes, I don't think they're, you know, Bollinger's turning a ton of their production over to this model, either to still Pinot Noir or to even just vineyard specific uh, champagne. But I do think that it, to me shows, I mean, this piece showed to me just like a, a lack of understanding of what has made champagne successful of late. It's not what, he seems to ascribe it to it's it's the brand it's the the sort of affordable luxury that champagne provides that people are looking for yeah i mean i think for a lot of people like champagne is in a place yeah like nothing else you know what i mean it, it is a brand like you yep. say right the same way that people feel th- that about prosecco yeah right like you just you buy a champagne for a lot of people it probably doesn't matter who the producer is because champagne or, communicates luxury yeah there's only one producer maybe they care about and it has a yellow label right yeah but otherwise it doesn't Dom matter Perignon, et cetera. So, right at the very high levels yes but i guess if you're saying for the major- just every consumer knows what champagne is yeah i mean we we talked about this for a very common uh one 
like champagne that you can find that you can pr- like if you go on to one eight hundred flowers and want to send somebody a bottle of champagne, there's a brand. Yes, and I think for a lot of people that's like great because it's a yeah this is a champagne I can send and that even if it's not the best for yeah. people <laughs> for people who know champagne like it's still like you're sending someone a bottle of champagne. Yes, I mean again that's why I think most people you know. Like think about this. So we were talking about this during the champagne tasting, like why it's such a brand. We were joking that there were some of the bottles we tasted uh, from that, that were very cheap, like $35, $40 bottles, which, again, is very hard to do quality champagne well, but it's still champagne. Like These are the champagnes that are like served to you when you fly first class on some airlines or when you're in some of the high-end lounges or whatever. And like most people don't care. They just think you're they were a given glass a glass of champagne. Of champagne. Yeah. And I was randomly like – Looking at that, I was I was like trying to do a little research about that. So I was like looking at the points guy mm-hmm. after we had that conversation to see how many times people mention it. And in like all of these reviews of like the business class lounges or flying business class or first class, they all talk about being given a glass of champagne. And only when you're like talking about Emirates or some of the other Singapore, do they talk about it that champagne being Krug or Dom or Vuv. Otherwise, it's just it was a glass of champagne, and usually those champagnes are brands that we don't have to mention, but are cheaper brands than those that people don't really even need to know what it is. They just told they were given a, cha- a glass of champagne. I think about that compared to the sparkling apple cider that you were given. Yeah. <laughs> when I was like, this is just apple cider, man. Yeah. And yeah, I think that people, most people like that. Yeah, they love it. Uh-huh. So I don't know. Don't do it. <laughs> No, I think it'll just be really interesting to see if any other houses do this as well. No I mean, way. that's oh, so. This is the one champagne that we had, still champagne that we had, right? Was from Le Grand Dame, but they did it as like a almost like it was a lark. It was special. Know? Yeah, it's special. They have it mm-hmm. randomly, and they brought it because they wanted us to try it. But like, and it was amazing. Yeah, but no one from LVMH is like making a a proclamation that right. they're about to like invest heavily in making still champagne. Uh, I just, yeah, I feel like maybe Bollinger can because it's not as big of a, like, as big of a brand as others. But again, it's a still a pretty decently sized brand. I mean, they sponsor all the Bond movies. I was just going to so say, So yeah. <laughs> I... No, I think it'll just be interesting to see. I wonder, too, this is actually an interesting thought that is, do you feel like maybe part of the reason that they maybe are looking at this or talking about this is they're feeling more squeezed out of some of those traditional champagne places by things like LVMH's continued greater stranglehold on a lot, you know, a lot of the brands we've talked about in this in the champagne conversation are LVMH brands over the last few months. And I wonder if, you know, there's a like, well, we have to find a point of differentiation because Mm -hmm. we can't go after Krug, we can't go after Veuve Clicquot, we can't go after Dom Perignon in this, you know, head-to-head, so we have to kind of do a different thing. I don't know that that's actually a great strategy, but it it maybe ends a, it gives them a little bit more credit for at least thinking about another path forward, although, again, I don't think it's a good one. Yeah, I think that's interesting, uh, an interesting consideration in, in this. Again, maybe maybe we'll see if any other houses jump on this bandwagon. Yeah, pretty crazy. Let's know what you think. Would you drink still champagne? Do you think this is a good have idea? Have you? Have you? Hit us up, podcast.vinepair.com, and uh, have a wonderful, wonderful time. Because I'm not supposed to say weekend. Because that's... Ju- sorry. I know. I'll talk to you Monday. Yeah, I'll talk to you Monday. Sounds great! 
Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire Vine Pair staff and everyone who's been involved in making Vine Pair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Visit theprisonerwinecompany.com to explore all of their offerings this holiday season. And remember, ground shipping is included on all gift set purchases. Order by December 14th to receive it in time for the holidays.